As you are making your way back to your seats, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. John 21, verses 20 through 25. It's also printed for you on page 9 in your bulletin. This is our 27th part, 27th sermon in this series on John's Gospel, a series I titled that you may believe, as you know, taken from his own purpose statement in writing. And we find ourselves at the very end of his gospel, again, chapter 21 in John, verses 20 through 25. And it says this. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? There's obviously a recollection there to the Last Supper. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but rather, If it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself cannot contain the books that will be written. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. This morning, as I just alluded to, uh, we are landing the plane on our journey, our uh, 27-part journey through John's Gospel. As you know, we've been spending a good amount of time here in this text. We did take uh, a brief detour into the letter of 1 John, but here we are now uh, for several weeks having resumed our study through the Gospel of John, and we are now landing the plane as we are uh, in these very final verses of this remarkable uh, account. If you remember, I mentioned how this is an, an artful and a very, very intentional, this beautifully constructed uh, account from one of Jesus' closest friends, from someone inside uh, his inner circle that we can think Today, when we watch uh, movie, you know, epics or, or, or biographies, uh, today, that the, the testimony of close friends is always important. There's that, that upfront and, and personal, upfront and close viewpoint that's very, very important. And we've seen that's also the case here with the Gospel of John, that this is someone next to Jesus in his ministry, someone in his inner circle, a confidant of Jesus, giving his up-close and personal testimony of what he saw. That John was a man, like the others who followed closely, who had his life literally turned upside down and inside out by Jesus. He had his life transformed by Jesus, that he quite literally had seen the light come down from heaven, and things were never the same. In fact, he was compelled, like the others, to follow, uh, to follow for three years uh, through thick and thin, to see incredible things, miracle after miracle, and ultimately, uh, though a bit waveringly, to follow Jesus to the cross and beyond. 
And we mentioned last week that here in chapter 21, that John, the writer, and he makes mention of himself here in the, in the verses we read, that John, the writer, is really giving us here his epilogue. He's giving us the afterword, if you will, to his story. That the, the main meat of his account, the, the highlights, if you will, of his testimony about Jesus really took place in those first 20 chapters. He gave us the stories and the sermons and the miracles and the actions. And here in 21, as he's ending his account, it's almost this sort of afterword that he gives us, this epilogue that he gives us to tie a bow on the package that is his remembrance of the ministry of Christ. And in this epilogue, or in this afterword, you've noticed that John decided to, to focus in on this one final appearance by Jesus to three groups of people, really. He appears to the disciples as a whole, as they're coming back to the shore in their boat. Uh, and you have that, that miraculous catch again, and Jesus fixes breakfast for his disciples. But then he appears, and he has conversations, really, uh, personal conversations in succession with Peter and then with John. And so in this final appearance, this final chapter of John's gospel, Christ appears to his disciples as a whole, but then has these personal conversations with Peter individually and John individually. These were, these were the two pillars of the early church going forward. Paul will be added later, of course, but John and Peter are kind of the two foremost disciples in a way. Uh, the two pillars of the early church, and you see Jesus having this personal conversation with them in this last chapter. <clears throat> and last week what we saw was we saw that account specifically with Peter. And we remarked and we noticed that Jesus, the risen Messiah, the King of Kings, the victorious you know, Lamb of God, on his way back to the throne, if you will, on his way back to ascending to the right hand of God, actually still has time to pull Peter aside. That the King of Kings, the, the God of Gods, the risen and victorious Messiah still has time to have a personal conversation with Peter. To still make sure that this man knows personally his love. That what Christ accomplished on the cross, namely the forgiveness of any and all sins and a fresh start for all who trust in him, that he takes that and applies it specifically to the heart of Peter. Uh, he applies it specifically to the, uh, to the account of Peter, this man who had formally denied him and this man who had his life defined by that denial. And if you remember in last week's account, we saw Jesus literally undo the denial of Peter. He walked back the denial of Peter in this incredibly profound and poignant way that he called Peter around him to a charcoal fire, which would have been reminiscent of the same charcoal fire that Peter had denied him at uh, a few you know, weeks uh, earlier. Now he finds himself again in a charcoal fire. And instead of denying him three times, what did Jesus do? He asked Peter three questions. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And he gave Peter that chance, if you will, to make three confessions that undo his denial. And it's this, this remarkable account where we just, again, see the personal mercy of Jesus uh, intersect with the life of Peter. And Peter evidenced himself to be this repentant and this changed man, and so the Lord restores him fully, restores him to his original and proper call as a shepherd 
of God. Well, today, in, in, in the text we read, the passage we read in verses 20 through 25, what's basically happening here is this is a continuation, if you will, of the, of the conversation that Jesus and Peter were having. But it's a conversation that now extends to include John. And the picture that we kind of get here is that, again, Jesus fixes breakfast for his disciples. It's this beachside, you know, uh, this beachside alfresco dining, right? Beautiful, the shores, okay? And then he sort of pulls Peter aside, and they take this beachside stroll where, again, Peter is restored. But apparently in their beachside stroll, they eventually come back with an earshot of John. They become back with an earshot of John, and Peter, now having John kind of over his shoulder, becomes curious. He becomes curious. Because you see, Peter is a changed man. Uh, Peter is a repentant man, a maturing man in his faith, but he's still just a man. He's still just a man. And so as such, what we see in these verses is that Peter is still a slave to comparisons. That in being human and being a man and being sinful and fallen and all those kinds of things that come along with being human, that Peter is still a slave to comparisons. He still harbors affections for, for public opinion. He's still uh, comparing himself and wanting to know kind of where does he stack up, if you will, uh, in regard to the rest of the disciples. He's still looking over his shoulder. Uh, he can't help himself. And so what he's doing here is he wants to know, basically, that if Jesus has foretold Peter's eventual fate, which he does, if you look in your Bibles, look back at verse 18. In verse 18, if you recall, Jesus gives Peter the admonition to feed my sheep, to go be a shepherd, basically. Take care of my flock when I'm gone. But then in verse 18, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is a very cryptic phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And there's kind of this editorial remark here by John. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. You see, Peter basically wants to know if Jesus has foretold his eventual fate, which church history later tells us is basically less than pleasant, right? That Peter will be crucified. Uh, Peter will also find himself crucified. History tells us that he was crucified upside down. That Peter, in typical Peter fashion, is bold. <laughs> and he's, uh, yeah, bold, I guess is the right word, right? Uh, but he's also incredibly um, transformed. And he doesn't even count himself worthy to be crucified the same way his Lord was. And so he asked to be crucified upside down. Wow. Incredible. But again, we're told here of this happening, this cryptic fashion. And again, we know from church history that happens. But yet Peter here wants to know, basically, if this is my end, so to speak, if this is my destiny, how does it stack up against my friendly rival, John? How about this guy? How about John? Again, the two pillars of the early church, these two brothers around Christ Jesus, spiritual brothers, <clears throat> 
men who have already shown themselves to kind of have a competitive relationship. Remember in John's account when uh, they're running to the tomb? Remember that at Easter? We were looking at that passage where John and Peter are running to the tomb. And John, the writer, has to tell you that he got to the tomb first. Remember? That Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. All of cosmic history is coming together here at the empty tomb, and yet John is so petty, right? I'm being facetious a little bit, right? That he has to tell you, but in the foot race to the tomb, I won. All right? Let history show, I won. All right? That's the relationship here between Peter and John, this kind of friendly, almost sibling-type rivalry. And so Peter, again, wants to know, that might be my fate, Lord, but what about his? What about his? How will we stack up even in our demise? What will the pecking order be? And you see, Jesus gives to Peter this answer that is so incredibly instructive and, and, and so simple yet profound for anyone, including us, for anyone, then or now, who follows after Jesus. And the answer that he gives us, the answer we see in these verses, is that he speaks, Jesus speaks, of a future faith and a present focus. A future faith and a present focus that can only be found in the gospel. So let's look at them quickly. A future faith. When I say future, I don't mean, you know, like, uh, Christians in, in, in spacesuits, you know, or, uh, you know, Christians who can teleport. Okay, not, not a futuristic faith, all right, but, but a future faith. What do we mean by that? What I mean is that we should be struck here by the fact that this is actually in Peter's future at all. That his demise is actually even his future at all. Not the cross part, not the fact that he's going to be crucified eventually for his faith, but the fact that he will be faithful enough at all to warrant the cross. Does that make sense? That's what should strike us here. Not the cross itself, but that is horrible. And it is, I mean, tragic in a way. But what is remarkable is that Peter will actually be faithful enough to warrant the cross, to be turned over to the cross eventually. For remember, this is the very same man who, when previously facing adversity, what did he do? He abandoned ship. He abandoned his faith. He walked away. Then when Jesus went to the cross and he was being arrested and taken there and his followers, in a sense, were being swept up in that, that storm, and when Peter was called to the carpet, again, around that charcoal fire outside, you know, the governor's mansion in that courtyard. And when he was pressed, do you know this man? And when he wasn't being pressed, even in a sense that would have led him to crucifixion, that, that, that likely wouldn't have happened, that Peter wouldn't have been, been condemned that way for his faith. He likely just would have been ostracized or he would have been ridiculed uh, and those kinds of things. And yet even in that moment, he found that to be too much. And he did his best, if you remember, to pretend that he never knew the man. He called down curses upon himself. He pretended to do his best to say he never knew the man. And of course, it was this denial that defines Peter's life up until the moment just prior when Jesus restored him. When he forgave him and he undid his denial. 
But when the, the paint, if you will, is still wet on, on, on Peter's confession just a few verses ago, his newfound confession, his newfound restoration, Jesus now makes this bold pronouncement of Peter's future faith. That this once shaky Peter, this once inconsistent Peter, will now be steadfast in the future. And steadfast to a point that it will actually cost him his life. You see, it's easy here in in this account to focus on, on the tragedy that will be Peter's end. And it is that, humanly speaking. But we miss the triumph that is Peter's demise. That it's a remarkable indication of just how far Peter's faith will come. Just how far it'll come. And it, it, and it does so because, again, of the unconditional and the patient, gracious love of Christ. That he, he bolsters his shaking faith and he forgives him and he restores him in this moment that if we're honest, Christ could have done it a different way. Christ could have called Peter to the carpet and shamed him. Peter, how could you? In my moment of greatest weakness, how could you, man? Come on. He could have have shamed him. He could have laid the hammer here on Peter. Peter, you weakling, you're pathetic. And what did Jesus do? He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He loves him. He accepts him. He forgives him. And you see, it's that grace, that grace and that patience that comes to Peter when he's the lowest, that has the power then and the effect of transforming his hard heart into one that will now be bold for the case of Christ, that will be resolved in the face of adversity for the gospel. And you see, I remind you of that because it's the same paradigm then for us this morning. It's the same paradigm for us. How does true transformation of one's heart here in the church happen? How does it happen? How does true heart change occur? Does it happen through shaming each other? Does it happen through condemning one another? Through through guilt, mongering, through laying that hammer? No. No. How does true heart change happen? How does future faith happen in the lives of Christians that were once shaky, faithless, inconsistent? We see the answer here. It's through a grace that loves people in their failures. It's through a grace that loves others in their failures. What does the Apostle Paul tell us in one of his letters? That it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. The kindness The forbearance of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's the same kindness that led Peter to repentance and produced in him this future faith. And that's something we have to remember today as Christians as well. It's the kindness we exude to one another. The loving of each other in our failures that has this way of melting the hard heart. That has a way of transforming our hearts. Working in our hearts in a way that will one day then produce future faith. When we know that we are loved in our weakness, when we know that we are loved exactly as we are, it has this way of transforming us and then producing in us a desire to be faithful towards that Lord in the future. It's amazing. And we see that here 
with Peter. But we also see something else. We see that the gospel doesn't just produce, or grace doesn't just produce future faith. It produces a present focus. And we see this really in the verses that we read this morning. Again, Peter is going to end up on a cross of his own. And that end for him is going to demonstrate, obviously, incredible heart change. But like I mentioned, he can't help himself. He can't help himself. And he wants to know, how does this stack up against my brother's future? How does it stack up? And in this remarkable detail, I mean, Peter is really to the bitter end comparing himself, like I said. He's comparing himself. He's sizing up his future. He's sizing up his ministry uh, to that of his brother's. And again, he's comparing. But isn't that why we like Peter so much? I mean, if we're honest, isn't this why we actually identify with Peter the most, probably, out of all the characters in the New Testament? Certainly, perhaps, out of all the disciples? Because if we're honest this morning, there's not a single person here. not a single person here that isn't prone to the same posture. The same posture. Comparing. Comparing our lot in life or death with that of our brothers, with that of our sisters, with that of our neighbors. And that can be enslaving. That's an oppressing way to live. But isn't it amazing how we don't have to be taught that? How it's ingrained in us. My kids, I mean, they, again, they're they're seven and five. And I never had to teach them. I didn't have to sit them down, you know, and teach them. Now, you know, you're going to one day compare yourself to your classmates. You're going to one day, you know, be envious of those around you. It was amazing how quickly my son learned the difference between our Mazda and some of his friends' Mercedes, (laughs) right? I mean, it didn't take long. Who knows? How does he know the difference? I mean, a car is a car, (laughs) right? Your car seat fits in both. It takes you to school in both. So you want the Mercedes logo or the Mazda logo? I mean, you know? And our new Mazda, it's fairly, pretty nice, you know, for a Mazda, right? Um, I like it. But it didn't take them long to realize there's a difference. There's a pecking order, you know, uh, so to speak. He compares. He compares himself, you know, or at school. His shoes, uh, you know, weren't Nike. They were Skechers. Then he got Nikes, and that wasn't good enough either, right? It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long for us to, to compare ourselves. And we do it all the time. We can laugh at my kids, and that's, you're allowed to. Okay, I invite that, encourage that, right? But we don't change. We grow older, and what do we compare? Maybe not sneaker brands, but we compare, what house do we live in? How many zeros are in my bank account? My retirement plan, my 401k. What neighborhood do I live in? How do I look? Is my career a dead end? Am I climbing the ladder? What about my high school friends? What about my brother-in-law who I see at Thanksgiving and he makes a lot more money than me? And I hate that. Whatever it is, right? We compare ourselves and it's, again, it's altogether human, but it can be Enslaving, And it's amazing how Peter here, even in the presence of the risen Jesus, the risen 
Messiah can't help but compare himself to his brother. And Christ's response is haunting. It really is. And it's one that we should probably read. I know I should do this because us pastors, we're not... (laughs) I've been given the great privilege of standing up here behind this podium and sharing God's word with you, but I'm not exempt from these temptations. I'm not exempt from these struggles, comparing myself to other pastors, comparing it to other churches, my own, whatever, right? We do it all the time. We do it all the time. And Christ's response is one that we should read every day. Put it on our mirrors, put it on our dashboard, you know? What does he say? Peter, if it's my will that your brother has any other kind of life than you, basically. What is that to you? What is that to you? If your brother has the nicer car, the better vacation, the bigger bank account, the more successful career, whatever it is, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. Peter, look at me. Keep your eyes focused. You follow me. And I thought, you know, this is incredibly poignant as well, even on a day like Mother's Day. Mother's Day. What a beautiful day this is to celebrate our mothers, to celebrate, you know, wives and spouses and, you know, mothers and grandmothers and beautiful day, a, a much deserving day. Because motherhood, as we all can attest, and, you know, motherhood is hard, right? It's a hard calling. It's a noble calling. But motherhood is perhaps one of those areas of life that can easily fall prey to this this paradigm. Comparisons. Comparisons, right? We have mothers of all kinds. We have nuclear family mothers. We have single mothers. We have mothers who are, you know, only give their kids vegan diets. We have fast food mothers, all right? And there's judgment on the other you do what? You take your kid to McDonald's? You do what? You feed your kid this? Right? And there's judgment. Right? There's mothers who work full-time. There's mothers who are stay-at-home moms. There's private school mothers and public school mothers and homeschool mothers. And what's the common thread for it all? There can be judgment. There can be judgment. There can be pressure. Am I good enough? Am I mom enough? Right? And you can compare. We compare all the time. How are my kids going to turn out in regards to my neighbors? my sisters, to my sister-in-laws, right? Again, comparisons, comparisons, and that's pressure we put upon ourselves. It's pressure the world puts upon ourselves. And it can lead to this feeling that I don't measure up, that I'm not good enough. And again, that's where the words of Christ are so instructive for us this morning. Peter, you and I, moms and dads, every single person in this pew, if your life looks different from your neighbors, if your life looks different from your brothers or your sisters, if you parent differently, you live in a different neighborhood, you drive a different car, whatever it might be, Christ tells you this morning, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. And it's amazingly freeing, isn't it? Is it not? It's amazingly freeing that we don't have to worry about those around us, that God loves us exactly where he finds us. That Christ came for you exactly where you are. No more, no less. That his love came to you. And it's, it's, it's powerful here. In your place of life, exactly as you are, struggles and successes 
everything. He came exactly where he finds you. And Jesus tells you, you follow me. Don't worry about those around you. Don't worry about your life compared to your neighbors, your life compared to your brothers. You follow me. You follow me. For I made you exactly who you are. I love you exactly as you are. And it's my gospel, Christ says, the good news of my perfect life, the good news of my atoning death, the good news of my glorious resurrection, that is the end of judgment for all. It's the end of judgment. And it's the beginning of grace for all. And it's my gospel, Christ says, my good news, that's the end of comparisons and the beginning of acceptance for all. For again, if we follow the fleeting approval of our peers or if we you know, follow our hearts to always rise above those around us like Peter tries to do in a sense here, we're always going to be let down. Always going to be let down. But if we follow Jesus, if we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, then we, like Peter, will remain faithful to the end. We'll know the approval that we have in his eyes the acceptance that we have in his eyes. Because John, again, he tells us, I love the way he ends his, his, his testimony. And he says, there were also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written down, I suppose the whole world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. You see, Jesus did many, many things. But the one thing he did that he drives home again this morning in this text, as he loved us where he found us. And he loves us still this morning, wherever you are, whatever place in life you're in. And that's a Jesus, that's a Savior, worth following to the end. Let's pray together. Oh God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us through these pages of scripture this morning, that you have not left us alone to wander or to, to wonder, but that you have indeed revealed yourself to us through the pages of scripture, and of course you have revealed yourself fully and finally and perfectly through the word who became flesh, your son, Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God, we do pray that you would continue to Help us to fix our eyes on you and you alone. That we would indeed follow you wherever you lead. And that in following you, like Peter, we'd be reminded that we are loved, that we are accepted, that you are with us every step of life's journey. So we thank you again for this reminder and pray that you would, again, empower us for the life you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen.